Bring it on, Yugi! Alright, it's time to duel! That's a nice attack, but I'm not down yet! You're listening to the Shadow Realm Podcast, brought to you by Bamani Lounge. Welcome back to the Shadow Realm Podcast. This is episode number six already. Zach, how are we already at episode number six? No, man. It seems like just yesterday that you uh, sent me a Facebook message while I was still in the middle of the ocean. And you were like, hey, I think you'd be good for this podcast. And I was like, all right, seems cool, but I don't know we'll be on land again. But here we are already. Uh, it's going to be my second episode, third episode, yeah. second yeah. episode. You're doing very well. And so far, no one's kicked you off, so that's a good sign. And <laughs> we have a lot to talk about today. Obviously, outside the world of Yu-Gi-Oh, it's been crazy with the coronavirus and the whole racial injustice, injustice that's been going on in our country. So, you know, usually in times like this, we look to Yu-Gi-Oh as sort of an escape. So... It's important to keep on track of everything. So uh, glad to have you on. And how has your week been outside of Yu-Gi-Oh, first of all? Outside of Yu-Gi-Oh, it's been pretty good. I've actually started making uh, sourdough bread. And I just made my first attempt yesterday. And it didn't go quite as planned. Uh, The problem was my sourdough starter wasn't really robust enough. So the, the bread didn't rise like it was supposed to. But, you know, I'll get them next time. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, you started off really strong and then you got super polyed and you just lost <laughs> all your resources. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, all the I, air went out. I have been planting a lot of flowers lately and gardening and landscaping. I work out, I volunteer at this garden near my house and I've been doing a lot with that. I've been uh, raking out a bunch of leaves and, and weeding out a bunch of weeds and planting stuff that looks nice. So I. Uh, I've been playing a lot of Sylvans lately with Lone Fire Blossoms. That's what that reminds me of. So yeah, I always try to compare everything in everyday life to Yu-Gi-Oh! for those at home. Too bad so, Soul Charge is banned. <laughs> Lone, Lone Charge Soul Fire is what we used to call it. it was Lone Charge Soul Fire. Yeah, it was yep. a combo. Lone, Lone Fire three times and then salt charge summon three hermit trees and summon two end on double fell grand and a draco sack and that was like a broken board back in 2014 oh my how times have changed oh yeah the tides have turned well let's get into our next segment where we talk about solemn judgment And now we put the spotlight on one card and analyze its competitive potential. It's time to pass down our Solemn Judgment. And we are giving our Solemn Judgment on a card. This time it will be Jet Synchron. So Jet Synchron, one card starter for many combos. Been in the meta for a couple of episodes now where we talk about it and how abusable it is. It's broken in, namely, any, any kind of synchro decks from Adamantipators to Dinosaurs to Mermails. It's played in Eldlick. It's played in a lot of decks. Of course, it's a machine that lets you help, helps you go into the Mecha Phantom Beast link. So do you think that this card is a ban-worthy card? Where do you think it ranks in the cards that are broken? And do you think that, you know, since... Konami probably won't hack a Fibrax right away, at least banning it. 
Would banning Jet Synchron make sense? Would putting it to one make sense? Where do you think this card will find itself in the Forbidden and Omnibus? Well, when you look at a card, you can't just look at the card in a vacuum, right? You have to look at what can search this card and also what does this card enable? So the fact that this card is searchable by tuning, which mills the card as its supposed downside, but that like it's a plus in pretty much every deck that tuning is played in. Like if you mill Golden Boy or you mill Scarlet Sanguine, then like, great, you just got a plus one off that for free. But um, Jet Synchron, so it's a, it's a searchable by tuning, right? Which is a not a once per turn effect. So if you draw multiple tunings and they ash the first one, then guess what? You can slap another one down and search anyway. So that's broken by itself, is being searchable by a card that's not a once per turn. And then secondly, it's a level one, which in, uh, in Master Rule 4 and beyond means that you can just normal summon it, link it off for Link Karibo, and then it's immediately in the graveyard. So you don't have to get any setup for it, right? right. And then, of course, it being a tuner that revives itself, kind of like a glow-up bulb would do, just requiring a discard. That's a one-card starter for any Halky Firebox combo and you are able to run six copies of Jet Synchron. I guess technically you could do seven if you're also playing like one for one or something like that. But like, you know what I'm saying? Like there's so many ways to access it and it's, it's just free, free value. Even the cards that you discard, like it replaces itself in, in terms of card advantage. Like you discard a card, but then it revives itself. So you're not losing advantage. And in the case of most cards that you're going to combo with, they're cards that you want to put into the graveyard. So it's like with Spiral, having anything that's like, think of Quick Fix, right? Another level one monster that revives itself by discarding any card. Like that card is broken and it's been at one on the ban list for like ever since yeah. the supposed emergency ban list, like two weeks after Double Helix was released or like three weeks, however long that was. So it, it having all of those qualifications in the context of a metagame where we have Christian Halka Fibrax makes it just too generic and too powerful and explosive for too little input, right? You barely have to use any resources to get there. You just have to draw the Jet Synchron or the tuning and then have any card in your hand to discard and you have a full nasty combo that either ends with like drawing four cards, fielding multiple negates, or making true king of all calamities, which is an oppressive, oppressive boss monster. Like, in the context of this metagame, it's definitely broken. But if you took Halky Firebacks out of the equation, if you took, like, I don't know, tuning out of the equation, then it becomes not as good. But where we are right now, I think the Jet Synchron is definitely a problem because normal summoning, like Mecha Phantom Beast Olion, it does not produce the same results as normal summon Jet Synchron. Right. You have to have an extender for the O-Lion to do something. But with Jet Synchron, it's by itself, and you get to play six copies. Right. So I think the most important hit is that tuning needs to go to one. Any card that just searches a whole like type or archetype and has no restrictions at all, it cannot stay at three copies per deck forever. Right? Like I, I was just talking talking about this with Fossil Dig. It has zero restrictions and it has no hard ones per turn. The only thing is it has to be a level six or lower dinosaur, which is like Rhoda is at one copy per deck 
and that search is a level four or lower warrior. And the only reason that it's so much better is because warriors are just better. Right. But with stuff getting support over the years, it, it it's the definition of power creep. Stuff gets better the longer it's been around and new cards come to support it and give it synergy. So that seems to me like the best thing to address is tuning needs to go to one and you know jet synchron is a hard one for turn on its effect so i don't know that it itself needs to go to one but tuning is just too strong for sure right, right. even if they were to ban jet synchron tuning would still be a good car and you could still search quick draw synchron and exactly. it would still be a good card like people i feel like people would still play it so it's definitely really good i agree now this is interesting because I feel like the more I think about Jet Synchron getting hit, it's like, well, maybe they could just play different tuners, but I don't really know another tuner that just replaces itself on normal summon and just like a one card combo and to be as generic. Like you could you don't even have to normal summon it. Like say you want to summon two monsters, go Nightmare Phoenix, pitch it, bait out a back row, and then you could pitch it from grave. It just has so much flexibility. Exactly. And there's no tuner that's generic without a restriction that lets you play that freely. So I feel like this card is not really broken without you know the context of Halka Fibrax. However, just because um, we're fairly certain that Halka Fibrax won't get touched in September, it'll probably survive another ban list. I believe with that being said, similar to Glow Up Bulb and its other precedent, other precedent tuners to be hit i feel like you have to turn to jet synchron as the next one in line to hit the hit the dust on the ban list and then i feel like once halka fibrex gets banned you'll have all these tuners come back to one so i i think we'll see blow up bulb again i think we'll see jet synchron again and other cloak the steam we'll see again so there's all these cards that you know out of context, they don't seem that good, and they're not really the problem either, but we just have to do the necessarily evil of banning them while you know we while Konami makes their business decision of letting Halka Fibrax in the format for a couple of tournaments. So that's just what it has to be. And in the context of Halka Fibrax being a card, I think that Jet Syndrome absolutely has to be banned just from a Konami's perspective. So I, I completely agree. So what's our final solemn judgment on Jet Synchron? I would have to say banned. banned. <laughs> get out of here. We have to get out. And also, have, I, would, I think tuning should also probably go to one. We should have to have a gavel. Exactly. <laughs> Let's crowdfund our gavel. Like Judge Judy. <laughs> Isn't there a Yu-Gi-Oh card that like it's like the judge or something like that? Oh, yeah, there's, like, Judge Man. <laughs> Judge Man. <laughs> One of Seto Kaiba's favorite cards. Right. I, I think it's uh, definitely an interesting way of looking at it. Now, we have our final, well, our, our final formal segment of the show, which is Traveling Road of the King. It's time to travel the Road of the King. As we talk about in-game resources. So, in-game resources... For those of you following with the book, it is a page 140. We go in no particular order on this show. We don't know how to count, so following page numbers is pretty difficult over here at the Mining <laughs> Lounge. And 
it's chapter 11, and it starts off with a great quote from Charlie Munger. It is responsible how much a long-term advantage, it is remarkable how much a long-term advantage people like us have gotten by trying to be consistently not stupid instead of trying to be very intelligent. So this is a quote that symbolizes how people use their card resources. So this chapter talks about, you know, how it's important to accumulate advantage of, of course, of, across the, the, um, across a game and throughout a tournament, of course. And the more resources that you get, the more of a winning spot you put yourself in. And Patrick Hoban goes on to say that, you know, as, as soon as you get an extra card, whether you, search a card or draw an extra card or whether you destroy a monster by battle it's a plus one and the name of the game is you want to get as many plus ones as possible and life points don't matter until they hit zero and you want to just put yourself in as great as a uh, as advantageous of a spot as possible when it comes to card resources however he goes on to say that the usefulness of card advantage is inherently limited as it is only a measure of quantity and not quality. So if player A has two Legend, the mystical genie of the lamp in their hand, and player B has one Gemini elf on the field, which has higher attack and higher defense, who is winning? Player A has more cards, but player B has a better monster than both player than both options player A has. So player A has no meaningful way to convert this additional card into something useful. So card advantage is insufficient in a number of other ways such as usefulness, if you have a mystical space in your hand and your opponent doesn't have any sets, then it's not very useful. So let's talk, let's, let's talk about how card advantage works in general, and then we'll apply it to the format. So in general, it's not a secret that the person with the most cards in their hand is usually winning the game. I would say the exception of this is with the toxic time rules that we have in the game. And life points are more of take more of an important role. So what do you think that what do you when did you understand card advantage as being the most important aspect of the game? I feel like you you learned this pretty early on in your competitive Yu-Gi-Oh career. What do you think? Yeah, so I came into the game competitively around the time that Pot of Desires was released. And I remember there was a furious debate in the community whether Pot of Desires was worth it. And at first, like, I wasn't against the card. I just didn't really understand why it was so good. Because, like, I saw, like, oh, you're banishing 10 cards out of your deck. Like, doesn't that, like, hurt you? But people would explain to me, like, you're not going to draw those cards anyway unless you have a way to draw them. Or unless you're, like, able to stall the game out for 20 turns. And so, like, I would rather just have the cards now. And watching, like, D's Eve's channel, where he he basically explained the concept of card advantage, like, it doesn't matter what's in your deck. Your deck is not a resource, right? So when I activate Pot of Desires, I might banish, you know, all three copies of a card. Like, when I played Thunder Dragons, I played two copies of Desires. And... There was plenty of games where I banished all three copies of Dragon Dark, which is like, you know, best card in your deck, searches everything in your deck. And that Pot of Desires still won me that game. Right. Never resolved the Dragon Dark in those duels, but I still won because I got the extra cards I needed. And that 
plus one, that raw power is so good. That's why Pot of, uh, Pot of Greed has been banned for so long. Like since, what, 2005? And it's never coming back. They've just decided to reprint like different versions of Pot of Greed that have different restrictions. But like, like would you not play Pot of Extravagance in like Subterrors or in, in Altergeist or any of those control decks just because you can't draw for the rest of the turn? Like, no, you find ways to get around it. Or banish your extra deck cards. Or banish your extra deck cards, because like you don't summon from the extra deck in those. So it's it's about finding your way around the restrictions and playing them in the right deck. Right. But um, getting back to the point, card advantage, that's how I first learned about it, was through the context of Pot of Desires and seeing that like even though you're banishing a quarter of your deck or one-sixth of your deck, I guess, if you're playing 60 cards, that draw could be the difference between you winning or losing that game. And the fact that Ash Blossom is like a magnet to Pot of Desires should tell you everything you need to know. Right. Same with Pot of Extravagance. Like, no good player is going to be like, oh, yeah, I, I'm not going to Ash the Desires. That's a... That's a bad card. I don't care about that card. Like, if I see Desires, I am always seriously considering ashing it if I have Ash. Unless I'm expecting that they're, like, trying to bait me and there's something better in their deck I could Ash. Like, almost always. I'm just going to Ash that. Same with the Extravagance. And that's why those cards are so powerful. Because not all... They, like, they gain you a plus one. You right. start with five cards. You activate your Desires or whatever. And you banish your ten. Those cards are never in your hand no matter what. You draw two cards and then the Desires goes to the graveyard. If you started with five cards, you now have six cards. That is one more option that you're able to have. And, you know, sure, sometimes you draw desires off desires, but it doesn't happen every time, and that's not a correct argument to say that desires is not good. Right. Variance is not an argument, right? right. But it, it does bring up the, the question of uh, the quality of your cards. I once uh, was playing Subterras at, uh, at YCS Chicago, 2019 and i played against imran khan and he was still on spiral at that point and he was super cool but game game one he went first he did the whole crazy spiral combo and i just drew nothing it was fine game two i opened two pot of extravagance no hidden city just like two floodgates and then i activate pot of extravagance he has no response I draw two cards. It's a copy of another floodgate that I already had. And then the third extravagance. Does that situation mean that it's incorrect to play three extravagance? Of course not. No. But it does highlight the importance of the quality of your resources. Right. So the reason that, for example, like Eldritch is so strong is that normally when you activate a card, it goes to the graveyard if it's like a normal spell, and then you don't get to use it again. But in the case of Eldritch, Scarlet Sanguine banishes itself, and and which is no minus to you because it's already in the graveyard, and then it puts another card on your field. So that is a plus one by itself. It and it activating gets a Golden Lord out of your deck. So it's a zero in card advantage there. But then later it banishes itself to get you a plus one. And that being the case, every one of those Eldritch cards, the Golden Lands and the Eldlixers, they banish themselves to get the other half of the deck onto your field. So they're all plus ones once they've hit the graveyard. And even though they're hard once per turns on all of their effects, and in some cases you can only use one of their effects once per turn, um, the fact that you get to choose your resources is what makes it so strong. So like every single turn, you're 
it's like you're never losing advantage. They just keep replacing themselves and giving you the plus one rather than you activate it, it goes to the graveyard, it's done. Like one single card there just starts this loop that just never stops until you run out of copies of those cards. And that's why the deck is so strong because it just keeps recurring this advantage, which I, I think is really cool because, you know, I love zombies and that's kind of the point of zombies. They keep coming back. They won't die. Um, in the case of Ad Emancipator, every single one of those uh, Ad Emancipator monsters is basically a guaranteed plus one, right? Because you play so many generic level four lower rock non-tuners you, you have three copies of doki doki you have three copies of kawaki mirror guardian and then there are other rock monsters that are in the deck as well so every single one of them if they resolve successfully they get you a plus one and they might be a hard once per turn but because they're consistently able like every single card gets you a plus one if you ash one of them you can just drop another one and activate the effect again so having that many levels of resource generation is just so so strong and that's why these decks are the top decks of the format if they like tributed themselves to excavate five and special summon one it wouldn't be nearly as good but because it's just a free body on board or in the case of eldritch it's free spells and traps that just reset themselves that resource game is so strong I agree. So, uh, yeah, Henry, what when, are your thoughts when, about that? When, when it comes to... I think there are different rules when it comes to combo versus when it comes to control. So, obviously, I agree card advantage is very important. And then when it comes to quality over quantity, I think there has to be a balance, of course, as Patrick Holman mentions as well. And when it comes to control, like you said with Eldlick, all the cards get you to another card. So, card advantage-wise, it's good. And a, a the effects of the cards are pretty good too. Like the interaction, the interruptions that you put up are destroy a face of card or bash a card in the graveyard. Those are two good options in every single game. They have great utility and golden Lord is also very good for going second. So the deck has very good functionality. I feel like when it comes to combo, you want to convert your cards into a really good extra deck monster. So one of the all-time best decks, not only when it comes to card advantage, but also when it comes to converting your card advantage, would be Sky Striker. So Sky Striker used to have three engage, which was almost a better pot of greed because getting specific cards is always better than getting random cards. And you would always guarantee one specific card. And then if you had three spells in grave, you'd also get another draw, which would be a random card. So that's why engage is one of the best cards ever. It's not once per turn and it's searchable. So engage was amazing. And once engage went to zero, people assumed sky striker was dead. However, the reason why sky striker, I believe won the LCS with Ryan, Yu is because the truth about Sky Striker is that the, they still have all of their utility. They have two Widow Anchor, they have Afterburner, they have Jamming Wave, they have Shark Cannon, they have Hornet Drones at one. They have everything they need to be a Swiss Army Knife. What they lacked before was no engage. However, with the addition of Halka Fibrax in their deck, all it takes is for them to survive one turn, which is very hard which is very easy to do. It's hard to OTK Sky Striker through Ray and any kind of back row or any kind of hand trap. 
And Ryan Yu played a bunch of hand traps, which served a dual purpose. They stopped your, his opponent from killing him. And they also started his Haka Fibrax play for turn three. And this is how he converted his resources. He would use his extra hand trap to start his play. And that would bring him to Haka Fibrax. And that would bring him to Axis Code Talker. And if you read Axis Code Talker, it actually just says win the game. Because you have so <laughs> many Sky Striker different attribute links in Graveyard. They're a bunch of link ones. Yep. So they're so free. You're guaranteed to, to pop three or four cards. Exactly. So he found a way to abuse a tuner. So it sounds weird because engage, like that's the bread and butter of the deck. And that's what starts your engine. But it's not even needed now because of how much how much free advantage Taco Fibrax gives you. You're not spending any real card advantage into putting up, you know, a Sky Striker link. All it takes is Ray, Ray as Bay, and then you survive one turn, and then you have to put commit one more resource, and that's your Taco Fibrax play. And if it gets stopped, you still have your Striker back row, and you know all of your if you have another Ray, and you're back in the game. So it's. It's low risk, high reward, high utility, high card advantage, and you're converting your resources. Like you could play a deck, like you could activate Thunder Dragon to add two more Thunder Dragons, but those two Thunder Dragons in your hand aren't going to do anything unless you have a way to convert them. So say you have Chaos Dragon Levianir in your hand, you get to set up your graveyard with Thunder Dragon, and then you get to blow your opponent out with a Chaos Dragon Levianir. So, but that needs more setup. You need to draw specific Levianir. So Sky Strikers is so, so generically good just because they have the Swiss Army Knife of options. They convert their options at any point in the game. They can go Hayate, send Afterburner, send Jamming Wave, or if they already have those options, if they're ahead in the game, they can solidify the game by sending Multi-Roll, and then they reset their entire field, and it's obscene. So Access Code Talker is yeah. one of those cards that you can build your deck around to make up for, you know, a, a lack in power or a lack in, you know, being able to convert. So Sky Strikers is definitely one of the best decks, in my opinion, right now, just because of how simple of a game they play. They get to play a lot of hand traps. They are, they are going to take over any kind of game against control. Like if you play against Guru, or if you play against Altergeist, Sky Striker usually has... I hated that matchup. Usually has hated the high the hand there. against Sky Striker. Yeah, so Sky Striker is a very good matchup all across the board, and I actually do think it's a very good meta call. Once I saw how it worked with Halka Firebrax and Selene and just Effect Valor, it's very simple but very effective, and I kudos to uh, Ryan for piloting that deck. And now everyone's playing this deck on Dueling Book. And online, it's just yeah. it's just a widely played deck. So yes, I agree. Striker is good, and it's a great deck when it comes to analyzing card advantage because you do have to convert your resources at the end of the day. Another deck that I think does it very well is Salomon Great. They have Salomon Great Roar and Salomon Great Rage, two cards that are very good trap cards that interact very well with the meta. It's you have a hard negate, you have an omni negate, and you have you know, a Steeds or a Fire Lake, you know, a card that just pops any kind of card is very good. And they will always convert their resources. They have Update Jammer to OTK. They have very set plays to do. They get, It's a little linear and it's a little predictable. However, if you're looking to just play every game and, you know, 
do that consistently, you're going to win a lot of games over the course of a tournament. So I definitely agree that card advantage is key and converting your resources, converting your card advantage into actually taking over the game state is also very important. Yeah, absolutely. Don't think I could have said it better myself. <laughs> so anyway, that wraps up this episode of the podcast. Zach, it was great having you on yet again for your second episode. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be back. And as always, catch us on the Bimani Lounge Discord or the Bimani Lounge Facebook group. Subscribe to the Bimani Lounge YouTube channel if you're watching on YouTube. Follow us on Spotify or any of our other platforms and stay in the loop for more Shadow Realm podcasts. I'm Henry. This is Zach signing off from the Shadow Realm. See you guys next time.